Hello, my fabulous chai drinkers. How are you? Welcome to episode eight of season three of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. One of my favorite things about living in D.C. as a University of Virginia alum is having so many friends I went to college with so close by. And when you find yourselves working on the same core goals professionally, well, that just makes life that much sweeter. Which brings me to our guest today. You may know Atima Omara as one of Washington, D.C.'s top political consultants and strategists. But did you know that she and I went to college together? <laughs> you could say we have come quite a way since our days in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, Atima is an award-winning political strategist, advocate, writer, and speaker who has spent 15 years engaging youth, women, and people of color in the political process and related progressive causes. She is the founder and president of Omara Strategy Group, a DC Metro-based consulting firm that works to build progressive political power. Atima served as the president of the Young Democrats of America and was the first African-American and the fifth woman to serve as president of the organization in its more than 80-year history. And she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Atima. Your parents are originally from Uganda, right? Yes, they are. Well, tell me about growing up, growing up in America as a first generation, right? First generation American? Yes. 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 Daughter of immigrants, as it were. So yeah, it was interesting. I think for me, a chunk of my life was spent a little bit in the Northeast New England area. My dad was finishing school and we made our way down South and grew up in Southern Virginia. And it was so interesting in that time frame, especially in the eighties and the nineties, where I feel like there was just kind of really two different, like just two groups of people. There was Black people whose families had been there for generations, um, descendants of enslaved Black people, and then there was white people. And there wasn't a lot of immigrants, and there certainly weren't a lot of, especially in that area, not a lot of Black immigrants. I knew a few, but we weren't like, it wasn't a large community like you'd see in, in New York City or Boston or D.C., even back then. Yeah, And so, you know, I found myself oftentimes just sort of always having to you know, explain Africa, like people just had ideas of what Africa as a continent or where my family was, you know, was like, and, and most of those perceptions were shaped rather negatively by the media was, you know, do, I remember being in one history class and they were talking about, you know, Africa and, and like couple of tribes and that you know, black people don't regularly shower. And I was just like, what the heck? Oh my God. Like, yeah. The worst I, stereotypes. The worst. Right. All the stereo, all the stereotypes, especially about the food we ate and, and all of these things. And I remember like, you know, asking my mom about them and she being just like utterly sort of disturbed. Right. And you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, also this mom was like working around the clock, getting her like another degree and being Aww. a nurse and taking care of both of us. And like, she's now having to deal with like the fact that like the school she's sending her kid to is like, not necessarily treating her black daughter right. Uh, but certainly yeah. like putting out like stuff that's just quite, you know, racist in education. Yes. Racist. Yeah. Oh, here we are experiencing racism. racism. Right. That was sort of the experience like growing up in. And we've had like share lots of conversations about, you know, what it's like sort of now as, as you know, women are late 30s and early 40s, like looking back on that time and, 
you know, maybe not having all of the language for some of the microaggressions that we're experiencing, the xenophobia, the racism, the sexism, the everyday racism. Yeah. Every day, every day (laughs) that we experience now. And so that has, those experiences profoundly shaped my work. It's why I got into advocacy work. Like I was a history buff. And so I so greatly admired, you know, the leaders in history that I saw, you know, Black people here who fought for civil rights and how I can contribute to that tradition and and changing, you know, our country for the better um, in this place that I, you know, my family now called home. And that's, you know, how I've ended up doing a lot of the work that, you know, I've I've done over the course of of my adult life. So, yeah. Wow. Well, that kind of leads right into my next question, which is that you are an award-winning political strategist, advocate, writer, and speaker. You've spent 15 years engaging youth, women, and people of color in the political process and related progressive causes. Where does your passion for politics come from? Is it so, would you largely say that it's because you're an immigrant and you came here and you're so passionate about, you know, having more diversity in politics? Yeah, I mean, when I think about it and I think about politics wasn't something I thought I was going to do when I was younger. Like, I think I thought, you know, I was going to be in art or film or just something in the creative realm. And I you know, when I think about what I thought about politics when I was younger, and especially in the 80s and 90s, like, you know, you had Jesse Jackson, you had a couple other major figures in politics, and Shirley Chisholm was still around. But seeing people of color, Black people, other people of color lead in politics was not the norm. I often say I'm envious. A rare sight. Yeah. Like, you know, like, you have two daughters. I'm envious of, like, you know, those two daughters are going to grow up in a world where a South Asian, half black, half South Asian woman is vice president. Vice president, yeah. Right, like a black man was president, right, right before that. Yeah. You know, and and, and women are running for Congress, more black women are running for mayor. It's like, they're going to see that world. They're going to see possibilities. And when I looked at like politics on television, I was a kid, it was literally white guys arguing on TV and the few white women who were on those shows like Crossfire and Meet the Press were usually sort of like, you know, feminist leaders meeting when they were usually white women. They weren't even like the black women who were active in in women's rights. And so, you know, I think for me, I got into it because I realized by 18 or 19, certainly when we were in college, that if I'm not at the table, I'm certainly at at the menu and it's on the menu, right? Right. And that's, that's what led me to do a lot of the advocacy and political work was, you know, maybe that's the way to sort of make a lot of these changes that I I want to see, Um, you know, and it it was was shaped certainly around the George W. Bush administration, the Iraq war um, and, and and the bad reasons for going into that conflict and starting that conflict and, you know, seeing him sign away, like, uh, it was like the late term abortion ban. I remember yes. um, without the exception of the health of the mother that got me yeah. involved. He was terrible. Abstinence only education, abstinence yeah. only stipulations in PEPFAR. We forget about Bush because Trump has been so traumatic. Yeah. But Bush, Bush was bad. Was- <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, people say, oh, I'm, I'm reminisced for the days of Bush. I don't. Like, I was not honest about the Bush administration. And, Guantanamo, hello. Yeah. War on <sighs> terror, us against them. Oh, um, terrifying. Oh, my God. Uh, it was awful. And so, yeah. you know, I was just like, when I saw this stuff, I'm like, listen, like, I have a duty to, at least for me, for my family, who's not reflected in any of these conversations and dialogue to be 
involved and find a way to get involved. And that sort of, that was for me, like my, my reasons for getting involved in politics and policy. Yeah. Wow. I love it. So a lot of people don't know, but now my listeners will know we went to UVA together. We did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> the science fantasy, like summer course yeah. that counted towards, I know why I took it because it was counting towards science credits I right to get rid of area, area requirements. Right. Yes. And then yes, from Arlington to Virginia, to the advocacy world in Washington, to, to the media world in America, what was it like for you, especially as a black woman, to see the Charlottesville riots unfold and like happen? Like, what was that like for you? You know, that was super surreal. I mean, I know, I think we talked about that briefly, just like our own sort of experiences and how heartbroken we were because, you know, here's this town with this like history, you know, like Thomas Jefferson, his own problematic history as, you know, a person who owned owned slaves, slaves yes. all of this like his problematic relationship with sally hemmings to say the least um and all of that all of that history and then he's also like the writer of the declaration of independence yes. and you know the statute of religious freedom all these things that we think of that like are definitely around the ideas of liberation and humanity and here he is like owning slaves right <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you know, you know that problematic history, like that, just very, like, like just baked into like sort of just white supremacy, and then you know, you also think about our, you know, our years at the university, trying to do good work, our friendships, our relationships. You know, for me, I met Emmanuel would eventually be my husband there. I've had some good Aww. like friends from there. But so it's mixed in with all these memories and also knowing Charlottesville's like city has had, has had long struggles for a while that deep in yes, its own history. Yeah. It's deep yeah. inequities because of the fact that it was built very much around, you know, a few Madison, uh, James Madison in that area. Like a lot of the, the people we call the framers or the founders who, you know, owned a lot of people who settled in that area and a lot of the Jim Crow that came, you know, as a result of, of trying to sort of keep black people in their place in this in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And sort of that played out historically because there's many people, many black people live in Charlottesville and many white people who have descended sort of from that history. They're descendants of people who were enslaved in that area. They're descendants of Jefferson, Madison, others whose like families were smaller owners or whatnot in the area. So it's not even an, it's not an area that's like super like DC. It's like people from all over and immigrants and, and all of that. It's a smaller town and they're dealing with sort of systemic racism and inequities. And so when I saw all of that happen, you know, I was heartbroken because, you know, all of these members and, and then particularly marching through the university, I was just heartbroken because it was now mired with like happy memories I had. Through the lawn. Yeah, I was on the lawn. The yeah. main, like, like, main drag, main brown. Like, where we'd sit in our cute little spring outfits and have classes on the lawn, like, so idyllic, studying on the yeah, lawn. lawn. Right. The lawn. And now that was all mired with this. Ugh. And it was, you know, and I was also furious. I was just like, you know, we're still having to deal with this. And it took that for even some of the conversations we started to have. And still, as someone pointed out, like, you know, it still really had to get to like almost three years later with George Floyd. Now we're sitting here at the one year anniversary. Uh, one year later, I don't even feel comfortable saying anniversary because it's not celebratory of his, yeah. of his murder. And, you know, we're still fighting like 
white supremacists and neo-Nazis and yeah. others. And it's, it's exhausting to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. And in so many ways, it's, it's intensified. The lines are intense. The conversations are intense and we're still um, fighting in many ways to have to, for the right to say racism and call things yeah. as racist. That's still more scandalous. I feel like in America than, you know, racism itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's worse to be called a racist apparently than to be called like, yes. a that's yeah. that's apparently. This is something I've really learned in the past, in the last couple of years with all these new conversations around race and racial justice, how offended white people get at being called racist. Like it's just the end of the world for them. And it's definitely the end of the conversation. Like it's incredible how they, how that has been weaponized because we can't even get to the next level to talk about it, to talk about it. No, it's, 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 that's the, that's the frustrating thing. And it's, it's, you know, putting on my very partisan hat here, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly, yeah, certainly across along party lines. Uh, it's not been across long party lines. Like we, like, racism is regardless of sort of political party. That's for sure. But what has happened is that Republicans have sort of really delved into white supremacy or like white nationalism as kind of their front for like no answers on any of their policies. Like they have long since given up actually working on any policies, even if I disagree with them, like, you know, on their economic policies, they're not even talking about that anymore. They're talking about how like 1619 project is the end of the world. Critical race theory is race, actual racism and, you know, making excuses for the insurrection and not recognizing it for what it was an attempt to literally take down our federal government by mostly, you know, white supremacists. Yeah. White men. Wow. You know, so yeah, it's a, it's an amazing time that we're in. Somebody said like, you know, what a time to be alive. <laughs> and like yeah. I used to say, like oh, I could be like taking this like an, an interesting compliment on the top. No, it's really not. No, it's, it's not. Not. Oh gosh, no, it's not. And now we're like being invaded by cicadas. Right. In another five weeks, I think we're being invaded by cicadas. Yes. <laughs> Things were not bad enough. So. You are also obviously, you know, very high profile in, in American mainstream media. You're a commentator on cable news. Uh, you and I have talked about this so much on the side, side conversations yes. about, you know, just how the double standards, the lack of diversity, sometimes pretty open racism, things have been kind of getting better. But what has your experience been like just being like a guest on on mainstream news shows and, you know, how hard it is for us to get those spots? Yeah, I feel like it's like a lot has changed even since, gosh, 2016. I felt like, you know, it was sort of hard. Like, you know, you had one or two or three really great Black commentators that were in the circuit. Gosh, the hosts um, were... (laughs) Few and far in between. Don Lemon had his faithful hour. Oh, yeah. Uh, later in the evening. Uh, Joy Reid finally got her show going into 17. But there just wasn't like, you know, black people, people of color in prime time anchoring serious weekend shows. And, you know, the commentator status was, was much harder. And I think that that has changed, thankfully, because people realize that the lived experience of black and brown people 
actually informs the work. Like we've been, we were yes, right the entire time about Donald Trump being a white supremacist and that the house was on fire because there was more than needed to be done. <laughs> that <laughs> and, this is so true. I mean, yeah, my goodness. Yeah, that need to be talked about, need to be done, need to be addressed. And none of this racial incidents and racially charged comments, none of this, it's just call a thing a thing. And I think now, People realize after what happened in the insurrection, what happened, what, you know, the murder of George Floyd and others, that that more needs to be called out. It needs to be spoken to because also when you had all of these, you know, white anchors, you know, they were never surfacing, you know, what you know, black and brown people felt about things. We talk about the yeah, women's vote. exactly. Yeah, when we talk about the women's vote in this country, like I remember I was writing something else about it recently, where you know, I so said we talk about the women's vote in 2016 or 2018. We never talk about sort of how black and brown women felt in the, in those situations. It was always very much white suburban women um, who are sort of symbolized the women's vote until it became clear, like black and brown women were voting very differently from white women. And when you talk about the women's vote, who are you actually talking about, right? Yes. Whose perspectives are you are floating through the area? So I think one, I'm glad to see it's changed a lot. I'm glad to see our perspectives welcomed. And, you know, I'm just hoping that that continues to stay the norm, certainly as we see more leadership elevated behind the scenes, like Rashida Jones at MSNBC News. To yes, yes. Like that we can expect to see more of that change in our programming. Yeah, definitely. Wow, what excellent analysis. So my last question is, what is your advice to other, you know, young women of color? What is your advice to like the young us, you know? <laughs> What inspires you to do the work that you do? Because we've really created space for ourselves, which aren't really traditional choices for, you know, black and brown girls. It, it took a lot of black and brown girl magic. <laughs> yeah, it did. I mean, gosh, there are women before us, there are women, you know, na- us now. And then there's some of them who are just coming right after us, who are a little younger in the industry. And if I was talking to somebody who was like us in college, man, I mean, <sighs> Don't, don't settle for BS, man. Don't settle for BS. Demand more. Fight for your humanity. And I see that more. I guess they call them Gen Z. Um, that group now. Yes, they are. They are. They know their worth. Yeah. Or at least they, they act like they do. Yeah. <laughs> know your worth. Don't, don't settle for the, don't settle for the BS. And it's not to say that we, that we have, but I think we've put up with more because people before us put up with way more. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there was Gabrielle Union, like the actress she was talking about, you know, oh, I raising, love her. Yeah. She's amazing. And she was talking about raising her children to be free black children and what that meant. And she was like, it's about raising children who don't feel they feel they can be who they are without having to sort of bend and fold themselves to just be approved by by white people, by by you know, by the standards of being straight or being cisgendered or or any of these things that they can just be who they are, um, be good to others, but be who they are uncompromisingly. And I feel oftentimes in the experience of black and other people of color is that oftentimes we're asked to not be, yeah, to be a little less everything. Yes. And that's not fair to us and our humanity. And so, you know, when I see these young people out here saying like, I, you know, I don't stand for this, it, you know, I'm not gonna, 
dress and act a certain way just to be considered maybe human, I'm like, you know what? You go. You keep fighting. Go, girl. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What a fantastic place to end the interview. (laughs) Atima, thank you so much. I'm so excited for this episode. Thank you, Atima. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. What I really admire about American democracy and government is how open it is to its citizens. You can lobby your lawmaker, meet with your senator, and sit in at hearings on Capitol Hill. But what Atima Omar's work reminds us is that democracy is not something we can take for granted, and that we all have a role to play in protecting America's diverse union. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And until next time, let's keep spilling the chai.